This is the Cash Value Solutions Podcast, where your hosts, Jason Polmeyer and Kyle Mann, shed light on little-known money truths to help you take control of your financial future and become your own banker. Subscribe, rate, and review the show, and check us out at CashValueSolutions.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cash Value Solutions Podcast this week. Kyle, you want to lead us off? Yeah, so this week's topic is going to be about how long should you fund a policy? Is there a certain length? Is there a certain guide? Like, what what are, what are we thinking here? Well, in the past, uh, we did do a, a podcast about laddering policies, and this is kind of brought on by something that we're sort of suspecting happening with the uh, policy design that some people are being shown. So what we're seeing is practitioners are showing designs where people are just really trying to juice a policy for four years. Up front, and, yeah. Yeah, up front. And then they're cutting the funding way back. And it's just kind of like, well, I suppose you can do that, but is there a reason why you want to do that? And then another thing that we've seen, and you know, if you watch much, much stuff on the internet is, you know, fund a policy seven years, then reduce pay up to maximize the internal rate of return and then start a new one. So, I mean, there's different ways to go about this. I mean, I would say it's probably possible that, you know, all this could work for you, but what is the goal here? And I guess we should probably start off by dissecting, you know, the first one. And, you know, a lot of people want to say 40-60 split. That's how you do it. Nelson did it in his book. That's how we're doing it. It's the most efficient, most dividends, yada, yada, yada. I mean, that is BS. <laughs> Maybe it works for somebody. Not going to say that. Maybe you want more base. Maybe you want less. Maybe you want more base because you want to be able to pay more premium for longer. Yeah. Maybe uh, the policy de- design yielded a slightly higher death benefit or something like that, which you wanted. And maybe there's a larger dividend paid, but who cares? Like if you're after cash value and let's say we're comparing a policy with a different company with a lower base, can be funded the same amount of time to another policy that's, you know, maybe higher base, but oh, you get the bigger dividend. But who cares if that policy with the smaller base outperforms it cash value wise? Like if that's what you're after, you know? Yeah, let's be... Let's realize what we're focusing on here and not get lost in somebody's marketing about, well, this is how you, this is the most efficient way to design a policy. This gets you the biggest dividend. And, or, yeah. you know, <laughs> this is the best way to use the PUA writer on the policy. It's the most efficient in the first four years. After that, you only want to pay base. <laughs> just these, these, these statements that are just, I mean, they're kind of, I mean, to be really frank, they're just ridiculous. Like, if 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 you want to stuff a policy with cash in the first four years and then lay off and fund it with a lower amount because you had a lump sum that you wanted to get into a policy, okay, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to pay in an amount, let's say you're going to pay in $100,000 for four years, and then you're going to drop it down to 40000 after that. Well, why are you doing that? Is it... Is that the most efficient way to go about this? Is no. it the most efficient way to make sure that that agent gets you to go through underwriting again so he gets another policy in force? 
Is yeah. it the most efficient way for you to build cash value? Yeah, we're, we're, you know, this has kind of come to light because we've seen these illustrations from multiple people who are practitioners um, with clients, and it's, it's, it's very misleading. So one of the potential clients that we're working with that we saw this illustration from where they would pay in, you know, well, I'll just use different numbers, but just they're relative. You know, you, yeah, you pay in your $100,000 every year, but then you drop it down to 40000 after, um, you know, from year five on. That, does, that makes no sense for this potential client because his income is only going to rise in the next 10 years. So what's he going to do? If he's able to fund that at $100,000 for those four years, it's very likely that he's going to be able to continue to fund that amount of money. So why would we want to reduce the premium on the policy and then have him go start another one? That's good for the agent because we're going to make more commission. It's not good for the consumer because then we have to go through underwriting again. Maybe we have to qualify changed. for this. Maybe health has changed and we can't even do it. You know, so, and I, they, this certain, not only that Kyle, but then you have to go through the beginning startup cost of the policy, you know, typically somewhere between years three and five, either you're, uh, well, what happens is you're start, however much premium that you pay into the policy, you start getting that much in cash value showing up. Mm -hmm. So as soon as that happens, we're going to stop doing that with this policy and we're going to go start a new one. The other yeah. thing, uh, I mean, it's just, it's such a short-sighted view of this. And oftentimes it doesn't even yield, like, I, I know you're talking about looking at different companies, but what about if you just compared the same company with a different design even? Sure. Was it the best design then with, even with that company? Yeah. What if we... And and I don't care what the what the split is. I don't care if it's 40-60, if it's 10-90, if it's all base, if it's anything in between. But whatever is in the consumer's best interest, as long as we're covering their need for death benefit, wouldn't the most efficient thing be if cash value is the goal, the policy generating the most cash value? Not the most efficient dividend. No, because it doesn't matter. The most efficient way to use the PUA rider. It does not matter. If we're talking about, you know, gross cash value and gross death benefit and flexibility. And I could, and I could see somebody coming in and commenting here, well, they probably have a term rider attached to that, so they could convert that then when they stop paying the PUA. Well, there was no term rider in this case. So that wasn't part of this plan. And then if you also look at it, I mean, like we said, paying on splits, but like with, you know, our design... He could have paid way less in a you know as a minimum compared to that forty sixty. Way less as a minimum. I believe we designed ours to pay in. Uh, I I I don't know. We've run, we've run a lot of illustrations for different people. I want to say it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of forty years though. Uh, like max funding it, not four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it and then the other practitioner. Uh, was wanting them to, well, you can pay the base, you know, the entire length of the policy. Yeah, but why did you cut the funding down so soon? I mean, what what goal did this client state that that is the design that you came up with? Because w it doesn't make sense. Well, and also if they have a sum of money that they want to get into a policy and that's like, okay, this is a quick fix for that. You know, we can 
we can throw more money in the first years, then we reduce it down. It's like, well, let's have some foresight here. Like, like we said, he's going to be making more money than he is now in the future. So why not, instead of paying that hefty upfront, like instead of paying a hundred thousand, the first four years, why don't we just pay 50 or 60,000 and level it, you know, throughout the policy, our money's going to get in there and we're going to be able to fund it longer and depending on design. And I think we're just going to achieve more of, you know, the, the interest for the client. Well, two things, two things that we want to be sure that we are avoiding when we're designing policies for people is limiting the amount of premium they can pay and forcing them to go through underwriting. Mm-hmm. We want to avoid those things. They're not super fun for anybody. So when you're designing a policy and somebody is pitching this to you, one, um, be aware of it, but you know, use your own you know, common sense about this. You don't have to be a practitioner to see, wait a minute, this doesn't really make sense for me. No. And I mean, a way to sort through this, I mean, they can tell you that this is more efficient. They can say the dividend's more efficient, you know, whatever the, whatever they want to tell you. But where the illustration comes in handy is we can look at it and we can actually see like, okay, what is achieving what we want to achieve? Is this 40, 60 design, you know, is it better than this 25, 75 or this 50, 50? Like, let's look long-term and we can kind of see like where we're going to be at. And then, you know, the next thing I wanted to lead into, um, I feel like we've really tried to hammer that point home. Um, this whole idea of dividend recognition and, you know, non-direct being superior to direct recognition. And I just, every time that somebody brings this up, I go back to what my mentor taught me um, that came directly from Nelson Nash. And I'm saying this from memory. I'm not reading it. So this isn't going to be perfect. But um, my mentor, John Montoya, he was uh, wanting to start another policy for himself. And he was getting weighed down in the weeds, you know, with, well, gosh, should I do a direct recognition policy or non-direct recognition? And so he sent an email to Nelson Nash asking him this. And Nelson uh, called him the next day, early in the morning when he was taking his uh, kids to school and uh, got through the small talk. And Nelson told him, he said, now, son, you're majoring in the minors. What does that mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which one you choose. That's incidental in this process. Exactly. But yet, I mean, it's got to be at least 90% of the practitioners because we, when clients interact with us, you know, it's just inevitable that things come up with other people that they've talked to, other people that they've um, read stuff from and whatnot. And non-direct recognition is just superior that well, is just the only thing that is touted. It's easy to say that. I mean, because from a high overview, you you would make that connection that that is right. And it's simple. So they can just, you can just say that and then be done with it. You know, there's... It's, the, it's simple because uh, the thing that everyone wants to tell you is that with the direct recognition, the dividend is always reduced. You get a reduced dividend. And that's like another cost to borrowing. And with non-direct recognition, you get the same dividend, whether it's outstanding or not. And right now, yeah, I mean, sure, non-direct recognition looks good. Um, dividend rates are higher than loan rates, and 
realize that that is a gross rate. So the loan rate that you're paying is still often higher than the internal rate of return of your policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's easy to say, well, that they pay the same dividend no matter what, whether the cash value is collateralized or not. And when you look at direct recognition, well, they lower your dividend. Well, that may be the practice sometimes right now. Um, it is with some companies and other companies are actually raising it right now. So you got to look closely at the company and how it functions. But then also, I think we need to look past just what's happening with the dividend. What about the entire cash accumulation of the policy? Exactly. If that's the goal, then that's what we should look at. And Jason and I, we use both because we don't think it's a big deal. And we think that it's just another, I suppose it's another way, like if all, if all you deal is in non-direct recognition, then it's you know an easy way to pull clients from other people saying that that's bad you know, because less dividend. We put so much emphasis on this dividend and the dividend is all speculation because the gross dividend rate could be 6%, but you're not getting 6%. You're getting a, whatever um, the company has for expenses, mortality rate, you know, factored into your age, your health, you know, it's going to be a little different for everybody. But, <laughs> and that is why they can't just publish exactly what, the, the di- policies are earning the net rate. Yeah, everybody is so critical of this, but it makes perfect sense why they don't. The only thing that matters is that you work with somebody who's competent, who has your best interest in mind, and and you're going to have to use some of your own common sense to, to determine what is best. Yes, and if it's the relationship that you value most, and and that's the reason why, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but don't. You know, don't don't be led down the wrong road because, well, you know, we went through all sorts of different reasons and gave a, a ton of background, I guess, as to why we believe that is not in the best interest of the client. I, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking, you know, in the podcast about, you know, dividend rates. Like, I mean, in the sense of how, like, it's presented as the sexy part of the policy that we got to talk about. You know, it's all about dividend. And like we said, you don't know what... The actual rate is that you're going to be that year, but if we can, or set, in the future, or in the future, yes. But if we can set you up with a company that's paid dividends for a hundred, you know, over a hundred years, like there's no reason to see or think that these companies aren't going to pay dividends. So just rest assured, there's more than likely going to be a dividend for the foreseeable future, and we can't control anything else. And that's why, you know, it really doesn't. <laughs> um, the process is more important than the dividend rate than the internal rate of return. I mean. Because we can't predict the process, that. capital accumulation. It's all speculation. And if you do want to compare policies, which is totally fine, you can do that. Yes. You can look at the internal rate of return of the policy. But you know what a big clue is? If the premium is the same, the one that has more cash value, whether the dividend is the most efficient that it could possibly be or not, the one that has the most cash value has the highest internal rate of return. Yes. So... Yeah, I guess it's important to not be majoring in the minors. I mean, I know we can all get caught up in that. And also remember that Nelson Nash, he did write a lot of policies with Guardian, which is a uh, direct recognition company. So, you know, if the godfather... Was Nelson really caught up in it then? No. If the godfather (laughs) of this concept, you know, wrote with both, like, you know, it's probably an all right thing to use both. And also, like, not just not get caught up in it. Understand how it works and then proceed. Yeah. And just so 
we don't get a bunch of comments about this. I mean, we realize that Guardian, you can change your policies to non-direct recognition in the future around the year 10 mark, okay? So don't send us a bunch of hate mail about that. No, I mean, but that's 10 years, you know, before. Yeah, So of direct recognition. Yeah, so. And you know what? Somebody may take out that policy with Guardian and think, oh, I'm going to change it to direct, or excuse me, non-direct recognition when I can at year 10. And then they don't do it because direct recognition looks more advantageous 10 years from now than non-direct recognition does. Just don't know. It'll be- and that's part of the... I guess the unseen has been going around, you know, the IBC community a lot. And, you know, that's, that's part of the unseen. You know, we're focusing on what today is, what mm-hmm. today is. And that is truly what we know and, and can work from. But we also know, you know, we can understand how direct recognition works. And we can see that times will not always be just like they are right now. No. So it's not important to worry about it. Exactly. Uh, majoring in the minors. We're, we're worried about something that is so small. If you really want to get into something that's going to affect your policy, you could go back and look at that uh, episode that Kyle and I did about procrastinating and yes. not starting your policy. That's a bigger problem. Yeah. Holy smokes. I wish I could remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it is absolutely staggering how when you delay starting by just one year, how much it impacts at the end, when you're ready to use this policy for, example, retirement income, even though you could use it all along the way, how dramatic that is. Absolutely. So so I think that, that kind of wraps this one up. Um, let us know if you guys have any questions or want to look at anything. Um, we got our information in the show notes. Yeah. So tune in next week, guys. This was the Cash Value Solutions Podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Check us out at cashvaluesolutions.com. And don't forget to tune in next week.